Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to go back through our training course and get into our principle of specificity. We're going to go through the principles of the principle of specificity. So this is the underlying foundational knowledge we need to know about specificity. Bottom line with specificity, we are the aggregate of what we repeatedly do. The thing that I want to go through in this podcast specifically pun intended, is to really set up the foundation of if we are the product that we repeatedly do, we need to know what context we want to be so we can repeatedly do the right things. Setting a foundation for what is the output so we understand what we're doing from an input standpoint to get to that output most efficiently. This is a phenomenal topic to talk about. We have a lot of really great insights over the next couple of weeks. I think this is going to be one for everybody. And hopefully I'm kind of setting this, this resurgence of principles being cool and principles being really important and people talking about it because that's really important to me. We have our book, Strength Deficit, Leveraging Eccentric versus Concentric Strength. This is your technical guide. Feedback on it is phenomenal. Don't believe me. Go to Strength Deficit landing page at phpodcast.com. I have a ton of testimonials. It's an amazing resource. For, and this is coming from legitimate people. And I think you guys will really enjoy this. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it's going to be a really good book for you. We have a course out on strength deficit this is the practical guide to strength deficit so the feedback was amazing book really technical now how do i apply well we got you we created a course it's 21 lectures it is a ton of information it is packing in all of the insights i've learned from developing strength deficit to understanding why it's effective to understanding all the shortcomings and all the things that i had to i had to revisit and fix from the shortcomings and the mistakes I had applying this. It's an amazing resource, both of those back-to-back. I highly recommend you get on that ASAP because it's going to help you immediately as a coach. Finally, Realize.me. This is your command center for all health and wellness performance, your dashboard, your place you can go and check your intervention quality. I use it. Sequester Labs, I pump all my information in there. I'm using it a ton right now to go through my strength deficit programming, which is featured on our blog. I think you guys will really, really dig Realize.me. I use it daily. I use it with a lot of my clients. I think it's an amazing, amazing resource. Realize.me, I have several blog posts on there. It's something that I think you guys will really get a lot out of. All right, guys, I'm going to pause right here, get you guys ready for principles of the principle of specificity. I think it's going to be an amazing couple weeks here. Let's hang tight. Let's get a really good uh, a bunch of notes out there and some coffee because I really think you guys are going to dig this next couple weeks. So let's get into this training principle specificity. This is our principles of this. This is the underlying foundational knowledge we need to have on anything that we're doing. Let's open up with a definition. Training adaptations for an individual will occur specifically to the muscle groups trained, the intensity of the exercise, the metabolic demands of the exercise, the specific movements and activities. In an attempt to perfect a specific skill or activity, you must perform that skill or activity with proper body mechanics to have correct technique. For example, a 100 meter sprinter is not going to train for an event by running three miles a day at a low intensity for an extended period of time. The sprinter will train sprinting short distance at very high intensities. This is from NSEA. So as you start to look through, what does that mean? 
It's essentially saying what we are going to be is the product that we repeatedly do, and hopefully that's similar to what we need to do in our sport. That pretty much is it. Now, there's a lot that goes into it. And when we go into principles and we think about principles from this context of you can go into Epstein and range, you can go into sports gene, we can go into maybe these anecdotal stories of people that really got into whatever sport they were doing at a very young age at a very high intensity for a very long period of time, like Tiger Woods. And you could go causation correlation of, you know, the Marinovich or Tiger Woods and saying, yeah, but look how it turned out. Look at the burnout. You know, look at look at the outcome of that. Versus the famous story of like Rafael Nadal, who's one of the best tennis, not Rafael Nadal, uh, Sergey Fedorov, who's an excellent soccer player, I guess an excellent ping pong player, excellent athlete overall. And or Wayne Gretzky was an amazing lacrosse player, and I think he was a really good baseball player. Like you look at someone like Danny Ainge, who's drafted in Major League Baseball, was a really good baseball player, played basketball, football at high level. You can go on and on and on, you know. And like this dynamic of, yeah, we can pull anecdotes and saying long-term athletic development models benefit from benefit from sports-specific all their career or from the other end uh, very general and very well-rounded and everything's going to be what it's going to be and there's going to be a psychological aspect and a physiological aspect and when we see 13-year-olds getting Tommy John that's just too much early specialization versus you know we look at this kid who's playing four years of three sports in high school they're missing opportunities to go to tournaments and games and showcase themselves maybe they're just not that good and maybe they're really good and they never really had the time to develop or focus on that. So there's always these like plays, right? And and I think when we start to look at the bigger picture, and I mean the big, big, big picture, is as we look through specificity, generally speaking, the aggregate of what we repeatedly do should look, feel, and smell like what we're trying to do in our primary sport or what we really want to be good in. And I think about Tom House having his baseball pitchers throw a football or throw a frisbee to be a well-rounded throwing athlete. And I think about that is in context of throwing a baseball harder with less injuries. You think on the other end of the spectrum, a guy like Franz Bosch, who takes the running action and puts them in really low constraint environments or very, very high stimulus environments, like running with an aqua bag or running with a dowel overhead or doing split cleans or doing clean to step up. These are all really interesting and really compelling, but we have to ask ourselves, is that going to help the bottom line? And I think when we look through something like specificity, I think you can get this immediate gravitation to mirroring whatever we're doing in sport, right? And we'll go through, we'll go through this, you know, general idea of 
you know, Bonderchuk and Yesis and GPP, SPP, and looking through GPP is a strength coach. So sometimes you heard us refer to as GPP coaches, and that stands for general physical preparation versus specific physical preparation. You look at our sport coaches, or a lot of times our, our assistant basketball coaches or football coaches, these are our SPP coaches, right? They're not talking about the tactical, they're talking about the technical in their sport. You know, their individual drills, their, their individual periods, their off-season individual workouts, their designing of their off-season skill development. You know, this is SPP interlaced with GPP. And when we start to break down our role, you can get locked into this hardcore GPP guy or a woman. And you can start to say, all I do is biomechanic, bioenergetic, biomotor. Anything specific is outside my realm. I'm not touching it. I'm going to make them better for their specific activities. Or you can say, we have to have this like very, very integrated model where I have to be very competent in things that they're doing in their individual sport in order to best prepare them. And I'm going to start to interlace that into our training. At a certain point, you just throw your hands up and saying, who's right? Well, how do we do this? What's the best case scenario? You know, because I know what I'm doing with my athletes that they're going to resonate a lot more if I'm attempting to do what they're doing in their sport. But the other part of it, too, it's I'm not a specialist in that. And I think they can see through if I know nothing about that and I'm trying to coach them through it. I think they know that. I think they know when they know more than you on that. I, they, they do. I know that for a fact. So when you're trying to work with them on areas that they're more competent or skilled in, how are they going to look at you as valuable? Right? Like if I'm going to talk about, man, like we should be a two-footed dunker as opposed to a one-legged dunker. And I'm like, well, you can imagine if I could dunk, right? Like imagine not saying that to a guy, right? Like, you know, like, nah, I think you should be a, a two-foot dun- two dunker. Like, I just don't think it's as efficient. Off of your personal experience, what's your take on it? Let me see your two-foot dunk versus one-legged dunk. And I, I think they can kind of see through that a lot. So you have this, like, difficult situation of, like, I want to work with basketball strength conditioning, and I want to be able to help these athletes. And I want to be able to, you know, broach the, what do you need from me to make you as best basketball player in the world? And there's a threshold that is a GPP or strength conditioning coach that you have to figure out. So if we are the product of what we repeatedly do, meaning that I do something over and over and over again, how much of that will translate into high performance or better performance? And I think when we start to think about, and, and the two, not only what, what is like, what's, how much of that is going to translate, is what should we do in the first place? You know, what is relevant to, to the sport as a strength conditioning coach for you to be touching upon and moving upon? And I think there's a lot of dynamics here, but I think the easiest place to start, personally for me, is looking at it from, I can help with looking at patterns and trends of injuries. I can look at that. I know in women's basketball that there's going to be a higher rate of ACL tears. I think we all kind of know that. Can I do anything specific to that to make them more resilient specifically in their sport? 
And they intentionally put specific in there twice because they think now three, because they think it's important to make that note that a specific program is not just basically shooting a weighted basketball or doing three dribbles right, three dribbles left to a pull-up. That is specific, yes, and there is a conditioning element, yes, and there is an element of skill, there's an element of low constraint, high constraint, open and closed environments. There's a lot of those elements. But that's not the end-all, be-all. A lot of times, it's not a great decision for a strength conditioning coach. Because again, if I get really too far down the rabbit hole off of sports-specific action, and I take away from my primary responsibility of improving my three big three, a biomechanic, biomotor, and bioenergetic, I'm going to take away from what really is the bottom line. Biomechanically, though, if I know I can start to program certain things and certain planes and vectors and certain structural balance and certain landing mechanics and takeoff mechanics, and I can start to look at things like force plate, I can start to look at things like manual muscle testing and range of motion testing, and I can have a better predictive analysis of potentially, just potentially, they might have a higher risk of an ACL tear. So I need to start to re-engineer my program and do what I need to do to get that person more resilient. That is sports specificity. Again, we the aggregate of what we repeatedly do, so we better be doing the right things in order to prepare that athlete as best as humanly possible. But then we can start to look down the rabbit hole, right? We can start to look at range of motion assessments. You know, and one of the things I always think about and I think about a lot with our offensive linemen or our interior linemen, we take for granted the positional demands they're placed into. Like they gotta get into deep three-point stances and they have a huge, huge body frame. They gotta be able to get out of that three-point stance in a very efficient manner because a really explosive, really talented and skilled defensive lineman is coming at them full speed, trying to get around them. And chances are they're not as athletic as that person in front of them. But the first question you need to ask is, can that person get into a three-point stance or not? And you think about this now. This is not a very trivial or seemingly small thing. Think about it from an NFL roster standpoint. There's 53 men on that roster. Typically, you keep seven to eight offensive linemen. There's five starting offensive linemen. So that means two people are considered backups or kind of you know roll, roll in players or kind of come in on a, 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 a semi-increment basis. Imagine if you're the sixth, seventh person on that offensive line. Imagine if you can only play one position because you can't get in a three-point stance, right or left tackle. If you can't get into a three-point stance as a backup, chances of you making that NFL roster is a lot less if you could. It's this idea of a switch-hitting catcher. Your skill set is so broad and so needed in so many scenarios, you're going to get a benefit of the doubt over that person who's really good in that one position or hitting because you can bring more value to the equation. So if you can get into a three-point stance on both the right and left side of the line, hell, maybe you can snap the ball, you're going to have a higher potential of playing multiple positions 
as a backup role when our left all the way down to right tackle, including our left and right guards and center, go down, you can go in and spell them or take their spot. There's the potential there. And one of the jokes that I always do with all of our combine offensive linemen I used to train is have them just long snap. And it always comes up with, I don't know, long snapping or long snapping a game. Like, I don't care. It's optics. It's all about optics. Sorry for my NFL scouts out there listening to you, but I'll try to to bamboozle you on this one because once you see an offensive lineman doing long snap drills and long snapping, they start to make notes saying, guy's a long snapper, or he can. If you're warming up and spinning that ball overhead like a normal long snapper progression, and then you get down there and you start doing some long snaps, Wow, okay, now you have potentially a skill set they can add too. Maybe you can do short snaps. Maybe you can just do field goal, which is you know, typically about five yards. You know, maybe you can do long snap punting, like 11, 12 yards. You know, these are all things that really are valuable. And again, imagine an NFL roster with seven offensive linemen and now having to add out of their 53-man roster another long snapper. Maybe it's a linebacker that can kind of be this hybrid person to play multiple positions. You, know, you think about the people who make the practice squad in the NFL. They're really probably not this like elite level left tackle that we think they are. They're probably that person on a college roster that played multiple positions that shifted from offense to defense. Because when we're looking at scout, they need a lot of different archetypes to simulate an opposing team. And when you have a very specialized football player only playing one position, they better be really good at that and they better be able to be a starter because quite frankly, as in a scout or a backup role is not gonna really make it. And your odds are going down. A lot of times your perception of being really good is really important. So you're fighting against that narrative too. My point being, going all the way back down to what originally started this premise was, can that person get into a three-point stance or not? Okay, let me look at ankle mobility. Let me look at actually knee flexion ability. Let me look at hip flexion ability. Let me look at their actual three-point stance. Does that feel uncomfortable? Do they look like look like they have a hunch back and they're basically about to throw up in their mouth because they're in a three-point stance for more than three seconds? All right, I know where to start. And they're giving you feedback. I, I can tell you so many times in my career that I had an offensive lineman that I just worked for range of motion with, trained them through a full range of motion, just doing what I do. And they come back to me like, I feel so much more confident coming out of my stance than I've ever done. What are their odds of playing after that? It's gotta be better. They're better, they're more efficient. And you know what's funny? I never did a kick step drill. I, I, I never did a cut block drill. I never did a coming out staying low drill. I just train, but I know what they need to do. And then you look at it from the other context, from what they need from a bioenergetic standpoint. You know, what is their conditioning levels? What's their fitness levels, relatively speaking, to their sport? You know, And I think this is something too, as we start to look at 
you know, these bioenergetic breakdowns from NSEA and going all the way back to Steve Plisk and some amazing early insights about we need to stop just running a mile in preseason and calling that conditioning. We need to have a better plan here. We need to look at the the GPS results or the the running demands versus the walking demands for all our sports, right? So, you know, I remember in grad school constantly referring to this article of soccer, basically run, walk, jog, run, walk, jog, 10% run, 40% jog, and the rest is coming down to probably walking, 50% walking, or whatever the breakdown, depending on position, right? So, you know, the all the the different positions and all the positional demands and how we need to train them bioenergetically to prepare for that and the capacity to handle that. But I think as we started to evolve and we started to look at other aspects of short-sighted or small-sided games and being in completely open, undetermined environments to not only prepare them for their environment, but also to develop their fitness levels concurrently, you start to get an evaluation there. But again, before you even get to that, that small-sided game scenario, what is their potential in that? And what is their fitness levels? What's their actual movement potential? And we've talked about this extensively in both the beginning part of our nutrition as well as movement is this variability construct of do we have the bandwidth to handle these open, chaotic environments? Yes or no. And if we don't, we got to make them more, more open and we got to make them more resilient by increasing their variability. Their movement variability from having higher flexibility, higher mobility, better control, their nutritional variability by having better cardiovascular, better endocrine, better immune, and better overall CNS variability. It's their bandwidth to handle these environments, which makes them more resilient in those environments, which gets us more from those environments. And I start to look at a open, open, non-determined drill with a bunch of just a time constraint of we're going to go for 30 seconds and we're going to be in this maze of sorts and be organic and figure it out. Or here's the objective, get this flag across the line or whatever other like small sided game that's a go to for you, which is great. You have to first ask yourself the question, was I, is this athlete prepared for this based off the things that I've done before? Yes or no. And you, you can answer that. Because that is closer to the sport because you're the aggregate of what you're repeatedly doing. And you have to constantly go back and forth between your role, focusing on the GPP aspect, and then ultimately as they get closer, the SPP aspect. And one of the times that we look at is how do I integrate this with training, right? So there's a sport specific aspect within training. And you know, I call it the throwing a heavy, a weighted ball or swinging a heavy bat syndrome. It's this idea of at what point does that stuff just replicate what we're doing, right? We're going straight yeses, it's SPP time going into that. And, and you think about a sport like volleyball, you know, where preseason wise, you start to condition your, your athletes to get as many jump contacts as possible going into competition I think it's a sound strategy I really do but it would also come back and say is that a more linear path to getting them prepared for preseason than potentially doing a really holistic strength conditioning program 
You know, and I remember thinking about, you know, when we get to fall with basketball and having a debate with our basketball coaches about we're going to go two to three individual periods, which is going to titrate up from like one on one to one on three to one on five, adding on top of it, adding in all this run that they're doing. They're doing all this pickup. They're playing on their own. They're playing every night. They're getting their shots up on their own. You know, what do we need to do from a conditioning standpoint? But it doesn't change the fact from preseason we have some sort of archaic preseason basketball conditioning test, like sidelines or shuttle test or potentially a three-mile run test that I got to prepare for, that I got to get them ready for. Because if they fail it, they got to do it again. And that's going to eat into their ability to play, to work in the preseason and they're in a spot because they're constantly doing this extra conditioning. and have this negative stigmatism against them because they can't do a three-mile run. I have to prepare for that. I have to protect them from that. I have to protect them from the level that if they go through that, it can't be such a decrement to the rest of preseason. That can't be such a shock to their system. Shoot, I've worked with football programs that do 300 shuttles day one. You know, if we look through <coughs> all of the things that we have to do as preparation, <coughs> we have to evaluate what's going to bring the most value from us to them specifically to what they need to do and if I'm looking at it from the context of I'm getting a football athlete ready for preseason and I'm looking at their positions and I'm going through my strength deficit progressions and I'm going through all these things of adding in I'm adding in more specific drills relatively speaking like alright we're going to do at the end of our workout you know position work or hey, once we're done with this, we're going to cut down the size of our workouts because we're going to increase our time spent doing doing more football-specific stuff. Maybe we adjust our time to get more seven-on-seven, more player-led practice period. But at the end of the day, if I'm going into 300-yard shuttles day one, that has nothing to do with football. We all know that. It's 60 seconds. It's brutal. It's about the most glycolytic, galactic thing you could possibly do in, in conditioning. It is a useless and stupid test that football coaches should never do, but they do. It is what it is. And you tell them it's stupid, you tell them it's idiotic, they're going to look at you like you're not tough. Good luck with that. It takes time to break down a coach from the stigmatism that they need to do these things. So you're faced with this sports specificity. We get on our pedestal and our, and our, high, and our high ground and saying, I'm not going to prepare them for that because it's dumb. And then they go do it and they get an adductor or they're completely gassed or they fail and they got to get up the next morning at 6 a.m. and every morning and uh, after that until they pass it. And you'll get passed over and they'll take it with their assistant coach. They'll blame them. The head coach will blame the assistant coach or the position coach over you. And that position coach will resent you, and he'll blame you. And it'll be this whole thing about a ecosystem and feedback loop off of people being pissed at people, and their athlete going, "This is fucking dumb." So all of that sports-specific work that I'm thinking about in July, like small-sided games, and getting more player-led practice time, and then implementing more specific things, still with the biggest thing that I need to make an influence on is making them ready, more ready for a test that quite frankly has nothing to do with that. 
but it's part of the whole thing. And if that athlete passes it, and then come back retroactively and say, well, at least that's not something that's a deterrent to me. And then maybe year over year, you can break down that coach to remove that so you can get more sports-specific working. But more boots on the ground, guys. you got to think about this. We're the aggregate of what we repeatedly do. Set principle. Specific adaptations to impose demands. There's that word, specific. we got to know what we're doing. We've got to know what's going to be our biggest limiting factor. We've got to know where we can make the biggest impact. Sports specific is not necessarily doing the activities of doing in sport from a GPP specialist or someone that's working on the, on the peripheral. It's looking at it from an injury production standpoint. How can I reduce injuries? It's looking at it from a improving biomotor mobility. Like, all right, I need offensive linemen to generate high force. I need a perimeter players to be able to do high velocities. It's looking at it from a biomechanic. Can they get in a three-point stance? Can they open their hips? Can they go retro? Can they do all these things? Can they do curvilinear patterns? Like when we had slot backs that literally could only play one side of the ball because they couldn't do a very – it couldn't time their their – the glorified you run, right? So down, ready, set, hut, pitch, or give, or whatever it was. They couldn't time going to the left, but they could do turning the right. Sports-specific would mean that I need to get that person to be able to play both sides of the line because if they're 10, we're going to be better overall. And that person's going to have a higher probability of playing. So as I start to break down that, and I start to look at my role and I start to look at where I'm needed. You know, one, it comes down to how well we listen, how much we pay attention. You know, if your head football coach is saying, I really just want you to focus on getting them passing the 300 yard shuttles because it's important for me. Before you say that's fucking dumb, start to go, okay, I'm going to show that I can. Because I guarantee you this, and this is from experience. If I'm capable of getting everyone passing that stupid test, I'm going to be a lot more able to change their mind because it's coming from a place of I can, right? So if I get 100% compliance on passing a test and I say, I think we really need to revisit doing this test versus I'm combative and I'm dismissive and then we have people fail, you're gonna be perceived as you can't. This is a bottom line fact. This is true for anything. If you wanna make a change in your environment, it's gonna come, it's gonna sound a lot better coming from a place where you can do it first. The only way I'm gonna change anything is if I'm capable of talking in a way that they know that I'm competent and capable of then I'm telling you that I think we need to do it this way because it's for the best interest of the team and our, and our overall development. Not because I can't do it, because I can do it and I think we can do better. That sounds a lot better. I know it sounds a lot better because I've said it and it's worked. Hey coach, after I got this 100% compliance in these 300 yard shuttle tests with a three minute break in between with their offensive linemen getting in under 60, or interior players coming under 65, our combo players coming under 60, and then our skill guys coming under 57, 
I think we need to revisit doing this test on the first day of offseason. Can we do it midpoint of the summer or can we just omit it altogether to kind of get this check mark? Because if I have 100% attendance throughout the summer, I think from an energy system standpoint or conditioning standpoint, we're going to be ready. And I had that. So not only am I showing my value from getting our team to buy in and doing things that matter to that coach, I'm showing them a solution. And then off of that goes into this next part, which talk a lot about practical. It's like, hey, at the end of our workout or at the beginning of our workout, or we're going to start to, when's our seven-on-seven player-led practice days? Okay, I'm going to adjust my training program to accommodate that. If I'm working with basketball and we're getting to pre-pre-pre-season, right? The, the season before the season before the season. And we start to get with our assistant coaches and they're ramping up and they're doing these 60 minute skilled skill and drills days and they're just just burying the guys out there in the court you know three minutes of jays or three minutes of this drill and 60 minutes later guys tanked and you got a whole lot of conditioning session that you're gonna have to really bury these guys from because you got to get them ready for pre 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 preseason. you know that that's the stuff that as you start to break down you start to look at it like actually i don't need to do that I don't need to do that anymore. You know, maybe I want to have a challenging day for you know, team camaraderie and doing stuff like strongman or doing stuff like a, you know, agility circuit or stuff that you, you feel like you can be really good at. You know, maybe you want to get like a more well-rounded athlete, right? So if I'm, you know, working with a, you know, a soccer team and we want to play, you know, something like futsal or something with that you have to use with their hands, like a, like a handball game. Similar construct, but they're working different skills. I think that's probably, probably within a, you could justify that. You could do that. You could absolutely do these things, but it takes a lot of groundwork. It takes a lot of trust. When you go to that soccer athlete and say, hey, we're going to play handball instead of soccer today. And they look at you like, what? You got me here for this? They got to show, you got to show trust and value in them and seeing the bigger picture. That you understand and appreciate their demands. They're not looking at you this fun, innovative coach. You're looking at this hemorrhaging of time. That they have so much time allocated towards their sport and development. And if you look at it, if you don't appreciate and respect their time, why would they value you? And especially if it's unorganized, especially if it's like just chaotic, you don't even know the rules of handball, but you think it's like, oh, dude, that'd be sweet. They'd like to be working a different skill altogether. They'll get outside of this like motor learning group path. They might create more inroads. They might get this like just aggressive thing. Like they're still working the same general patterns of walk, run, jog, and they're working this, you know, this basically same progression from moving the ball around. Just instead of using their feet, they're using their hands, which is a skill they have underdeveloped. They're going to look at you as, this just seems random and chaotic. And this doesn't seem like it was well planned out or thought out. So why would I do this or give a lot of effort towards it? And I think that's the stuff as we're starting to break down sports specificity. And I'm like, all right, man, I just read Driveline's baseball book. Amazing book. Incredible. Like these guys just reverse engineered how to throw a 90 mile per hour fastball for pretty much anyone who's got the certain velocity zone. Or we look at you know MVP machine and you know the lot of principle of squ- swinging it backward upward to get the ball and play more so. Or you look at Ted Williams' art science of hitting a baseball. 
And I'm like, man, I'm really trying to understand baseball because I've got a lot of baseball athletes. And then we get to that point, we're working that baseball athlete, we're asking them, how can we help you? How can we serve you better? And they're saying, you know what? I already do a lot of throwing or I already do a lot of hitting. I'm good. I wouldn't mind being able to throw a med ball better. I wouldn't mind being able to front squat better. I wouldn't mind being able to do this better. And you're saying, awesome. Okay, <laughs> like I can do that and I'm okay with that. If you're ever crossing that threshold, you're like, damn, I'm having a tough day, a tough week to get all my throwing and all my hitting in and we can help in some way, let us know. When I'm working with my football guys in the off season, are you doing individuals? Are you going through these progressions? Are you heading a, are heading over to, uh, to seven on seven with any teams in the area? Yep, I got that. Great. What do you need from me? Just the weight room. Awesome. Can I implement this program called Strength Deficit that's going to help us peak for preseason? Yeah, if it makes sense. Fits in with everything else. Awesome, man. I really appreciate that. I'll dial that up. But that's specificity to me. That's specificity within the context of our jobs. Specificity within the... They sought me out for some sort of level of service that I could bring. Not because I'm a great baseball coach. I don't know the intricacies of throwing like Tom Housewood or Driveline or anyone else out there. I can understand the principles. I can understand their their values. I can understand, okay, like they're doing a lot of CNS intensive work on this day. I don't need to do a lot of CNS intensive stuff on the following day. I got to be malleable to that. I got to be appreciative of that. If Tom at USC says, hey, I want you to implement some weighted ball throwing into the program because it's getting, we're having a hard time getting it over at the facility over here. And you're saying, yeah, we got a 10 minute period. We could do that on this day. Does that work for you? Yeah, great. I think that's the stuff that we need to start thinking about. We need to start thinking about boots on the ground and logistics of all this. So recap, and this is another part I really want you guys to think about as you're going through sports specificity. You know, this reverse engineering thing and looking at it from the end to the beginning. And, you know, I want to be this for preseason. So I start in January. What do I need to do? You know, a lot of times things aren't the sum of their parts. Most times they're not, right? Like we work with complex, open, adaptive systems that they're never going to be the sum of its parts after we break it down and reconstruct them. But we can take big parts and we can say that's a part we really need to lean in on. So maybe they're never going to be the same or even close to it. But that's kind of the point too, right? They're never going to be what they were before because we've added so many different stimuluses and things to their system. But on the other end, we go into this dynamic of those things, those parts, depending on where I'm at from a strength conditioning perspective, relatively speaking to their sport perspective. We'll say that I've been working with one sport for 20 years. We've got our whole system. We're doing really well. I work really well with the coaches. And they go, okay, I can lean in on this for Tam to do this. And he can get that. And he can do this. And they can focus on other areas. Or they can get a little bit more advanced in these other things. Because their athletes are coming to them more prepared for these stuff. They don't have to spend as much time on this stuff. Then we can start to look at this from a bigger picture standpoint of you are a an integral piece in this whole sports-specific reaching sports mastery dynamic that is invaluable. 
you know your place, you know your role, you know your you know your process. You know where you can bring the most value. You know what's actually important. You know what's actually the biggest thing. In no way, shape, or form are you saying, when I reverse engineer this thing, I'm expecting them to be the same when we're done. In fact, I hope they're not. I hope they're better. And big part of that is looking at it from, if they need to be here at point B, what do I need to do from point A to that on a repeated basis to get them there? That the aggregate, the said, the the element of, I'm going to distribute most of my time to this because this is most valuable. You know, one of the ones that I always think about, and this is something that came up quite a bit, swimming and diving is a cyclical sport. And when we talk about GPP, SPP, we have to be cognizant of most of that is based off the cyclical sports. Most of that is based off the construct that we're going to repeat this action over and over and over again, like swimming and running or throwing. So track and field, swimming, any Olympic sport, cross-country skiing, where you're just basically doing the same action, a cyclical a cyclical action over and over again. It's a lot easier to get sport-specific for that than it is for a completely open, acyclical environment, like soccer or football. When we're looking at this sport of swimming and diving, and you're working with a coach that's working with elite-level athletes, Olympic athletes, and he's like, I really want you to get this, you know, SPP, right? And I remember... I remember there's two parts of this. One, my program was not designed to help them in, in the water. I mean, we had a conversation about potentiation. So we wanted to get some sort of explosive ballistic action. We want to improve rate of force development. We had to do a lot of different things. But to be completely frank, and this is like a big point of friction, and I've thought about this quite a bit since I've left. You get this pretense of looking at an injury report and seeing 90% of it comes out of the water. There was very little water-related injuries. It was tripped on the pool deck, tripped walking a class, fell over this, sprained an ankle doing this. Zero of it was probably related to what they were doing in the water. 90% on the low end was dedicated to just being accidents, just not being land animals. So when I'm designing a program, honestly, it was a lot of balanced proprioceptive work. It was a lot of closed kinetic chain work. It was a lot of things that I think would improve their resiliency as a land-based animal. Because that, in effect, was our biggest limiting factor. They would miss pool time. They would miss weight room time because of some seemingly accident, accidental thing that happened to them in between those sessions. So when I'm looking at our program, I'm thinking I'm trying to remove the biggest limiting factor to us performing at a high level. Where our coach had a really big instinct on I want them to do everything related to their event time in the weight room. Meaning, if it takes them 10 seconds to go 50 meters, I want every one of our sets to be 10 seconds. Extreme bioenergetic sports specificity, right? And going back and forth and having a lot of powwow about it and saying, oh, wow, okay, that, that, doesn't really make sense when you really break it down. It's not the way this happens, that we're going to be the aggregate of what we repeatedly do, but we're doing that at quite a high amount within the water. We need to start to look at, if we do the same thing and expect a different result, we're probably going to get the same result. 
we need to think outside the box and we need to prove their their biomotor abilities in other directions is more more of a means of improving their functioning levels so we can get either higher capacity and potentially a higher potential for power go to my force velocity work module we should think outside the box here but we should also think about that's not going to be our limiting factor their point is mute if they sprain their ankle tripping over a curb walking to class so we had a lot of conflict and maybe I didn't manage that well Maybe I could go back and look through that and say, all right, didn't do a great job in that area. As we start to break down our role with coaches, we need to appreciate their job, our job, and how can we best serve each other. I just finished a blog post, high performance model. Was it a failure? I think there's an element of, you know, kind of looking at, everyone's role within a bigger system is it's never going to be meritocratic, meaning that everyone's going to have shared and equal responsibility towards towards a greater goal. It's always going to be hierarchical. But you can still prove yourself and you can still show your value. You can still create more within your environment by just simply, simply looking and saying, what can I do today that's going to bring value specifically to what they want to what they want to do in their sport or what they need to do. So, breakdown, sport specific. It's looking at doing what we do repeatedly towards some sort of larger goal. It can be doing the sport specific actions, the, te- the tactical stuff, the technical stuff. It could also be looking at injury rates. It could look at biomechanics, looking at biomotor abilities, it could look at bioenergetics. And saying, how do I prepare those athletes that's relevant to the sport? How do I improve the functioning capacity of the athletes so they don't get hurt as much and they can potentially do more from a variability standpoint based off what they need to do in their sport? That is sport specificity. I hope that makes sense. I hope all that stuff is resonating. Definitely get over to the module on this one because I synced a video from Bondachuk. I think it's going to help a lot with context here. Obviously talking about GPP, SPP, obviously talking about a lot of things that are really important to understand about sports specificity because that's going to be the game here. It's it's looking at this from the angle of I want to do more. I want to be better. I want to help our athletes at a more robust level, but there's a limitation to what we can do based off our understanding or ability to do some of the things relevant relevant to what the athletes can do. Yeah, I think we all know that if we were capable of doing it as well as our athletes, we'd probably be doing what our athletes are doing. So there's a, an element of we shouldn't be as good as our athletes at their sport domain. Doesn't mean that we can't help them relevantly to, relevant to that. All right, guys, let's see you guys. Let's. Let's take a break here. Let's get on to our next series, which would be that practical aspect. And uh, make sure you're going through the module. Make sure you're going through all the other relevant details here because it's a great, great principle. And I really want to take some time with this one. All right, guys. I appreciate you guys. We'll see you on the other side.